You're listening to Making Money Online with Lisa Johnson, the podcast that tells you what it really takes to build a business and the simple steps to get you there. I'm determined to share with you the reality of easy, simple business marketing tips to make passive income so that you can start making money online. Making Money Online is sponsored by Nicola J. Rowley PR, helping entrepreneurs and brands get visible through strategic storytelling. If you're serious about being seen and impacting the lives of others, harnessing the power of PR is the best way to grow and scale your business. Visit njrpr.com for more details and read Nicola's best-selling book, The Power of PR. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. Today I want to talk a little bit about trauma and about attachment and about everything that goes with that. We know that in business, well, most of us know that in business, sometimes the reason that our business isn't working isn't because we've not got the right strategy or even that, you know, it might not even be our mindset in the way we normally think about mindset. It might be because we're holding on to things that happened years and years ago. And so I wanted to bring in an expert. I have with me today, Dr. Claire Burley. Dr. Claire is a clinical psychologist. She's an expert in attachment and trauma. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No worries. What I wanted to talk about first, because you are, and I've known for some time, you are a clinical psychologist and you do this professionally and have done this professionally for years and years. And you've come online, you know, you've got private practice and you've been doing it in the NHS. Um, and then you've come online to work online. That must be quite strange for someone that's always done this in private practice anyway. But how do you feel about the fact that there are people popping up everywhere calling themselves psychologists? <laughs> like I know of people that call themselves a, a success psychologist that have absolutely no psychology background. It, have you found that difficult? Yeah, it's a strange world, the online place, completely different to the NHS. And yeah, as you know, my my profession is heavily regulated. So coming into the online space and finding there isn't the same or anywhere near the same level of regulation has been interesting. Um, it's really confusing, I think, for the general public to know where to seek help, where to where to place their trust. Um, that anyone can call themselves a coach, anyone can actually call themselves a psychologist, in fact, and lots of people do if they've just done an undergrad psychology degree because those titles aren't protected. Whereas clinical psychologists, any kind of practitioner psychologist title is protected by the HCPC. So not everyone can call themselves a clinical psychologist or a counseling psychologist or a forensic psychologist. But I guess someone wouldn't know, would they? Like someone like me, I don't know the difference between all those terms. If someone says the word psychologist, I assume they have been trained to be a psychologist. Yeah. And that's not necessarily true, is it? And I only found that out recently that anyone can call themselves a psychologist. That's or oh, therapist. Yes, absolutely. Which is why as a profession, we very strongly advocate people doing their research. I know you do as well in terms of doing due diligence, not just the fancy words or, or the number of years doing something, but actually look to see whether they're regulated and registered with a with a professional body um, and again this can be a mindful as you know of, um, of accrediting your courses that it's a proper regulating body not just a company that somebody set up 
Well, yeah, that's why we, we decided to, to regulate with a regulating body that's already in existence, that's been there for a long period of time that has set standards with our courses because I'm seeing so many people say, oh, yeah, you can get level four in ADHW coaching level three. And mm-hmm. I'd go and look up ADHW or whatever it is, and it's just their company. They've just made a regulating body to mm-hmm. accredit their own courses so there's no set standard there's no one overlooking it and i thought yeah i need to do this properly with cpd i'm not going to just start my own company just because i do think we need a standard a higher standard in this industry to all things absolutely because it's also about gatekeeping if you have regulatory bodies and you have accrediting bodies they're actually gatekeeping and they're saying that you're you can't go out into the world and see Um, vulnerable often people who need help without somebody having had eyes on you not just you turning up to a class but actually supervising you or or you've had to submit some coursework or you've in our case we get observed um, and we get um, supervisors um, supervising our practice so you're not just going out into the world doing whatever you like yeah and I think when it comes to trauma that's really important I have worked with people before who I'm no longer aligning myself with, who say that they're trauma-informed, which just seems to be you've read a book on trauma these days. And so they then bring out all of the stuff from your childhood, but they have no idea what to do with it then. And so you're then living with it. I've seen this happen to so many people. It's really important that, you know, these people are, are... qualified to know what to do when they do bring up this stuff because it can cause so many issues in people and you know yeah look you've I've got all this out of you look how good I am but then what yeah absolutely and and that's where a lot of people fall down is that they'll say you know they've they've told their coach or or some other professional some of their um more personal vulnerable things and then they've just been left with it and they they don't know then what to do with that Ultimately, we need to feel like we're in a safe pair of hands, that when we share information with a professional, that they're actually going to know what to do next and how to help us with that. Yeah, I think that's so true. So let's get on to what you do. So you work with trauma and attachment. Can you explain what that means to you? Because attachment is something that we hear every now and again, um, but in different ways. Yeah, sure. So um, let me tell you a little bit about the the backstory. Um, So... We've already said, you know, my profession is heavily regulated and do a lot of training. So we do the psychology undergrad um, degree, which anyone can do. Um, And then as if we're going on to actually qualify, we go and get some work experience and then we do clinical training, which is the doctorate. And in that doctorate, we do placements in lots of different settings, working with lots of different mental health um, well, it's very medical terms, they call them mental health disorders and different age groups across the range, a bit like a GP would do. You've gone around and done a bit of everything and then you specialize. So for me, when I came into clinical training, I very much thought I wanted to work with adults. Um, I felt passionately about that. But when I started the clinical training, we actually had a guest come in um, and he was talking about his experiences in prison. Um, And as part of that, he talked about his upbringing and talked about being in care. And it was in that moment that I thought, actually, why are we working with adults? Why don't we catch this right at the beginning when things are starting to go wrong? And it was in that moment I thought I want to work with children. And around the same time, I also kind of started to lean away from the kind of predominant therapy model at the time, which was CBT, which very much... I don't like the 
language with CBT um, and it was very much talking about people's thoughts and sort of challenging your thoughts. I was leaning away from that because it didn't resonate with me, um, more towards working systemically. So seeing mental health as a symptom of our environment, symptom of our relationships and um, our upbringing. So I went down that road to specialize in attachment and trauma and worked in lots of different services where um, it was that focus. So um, couples therapy clinics, family therapy clinics. I worked in a service for children um, who were fostered and adopted. Um, oh. I worked with um, new mums who were struggling to bond with their babies. So lots around attachment. Um, and then when I qualified, I carried on working um, in fostering and adoption. And it was then that I sort of came back full circle because what I realized working with those children who suffered a lot of trauma and a lot of attachment um, disruption, um, that actually the way to help them heal and grow is through the adults that are taking care of them. So it came back full circle for me where I realized actually we need to be working with the adults to yeah. heal their background so that they can show up and be the best parents and caregivers that they can possibly be for these really traumatized children so i sort of came back full circle and you know when people talk about attachment they think i'm often talking about couples they think that i'm talking about um you know how someone is in a relationship with their spouse but when i talk about attachment i'm talking about parent-child relationships so if we rewind back to the beginning, um, attachment theory was first proposed by a British psychologist called John Bowlby. And he described how we are predisposed to um, form attachment relationships with caregivers where we can seek comfort from distress and we can um, get uh, safety for our survival. And so in order to do that, we have to develop attachment behaviors to try to give ourselves the best possible chance of having those needs being met. So there's actually four types of um, attachment styles they're called, but they're essentially strategies, attachment strategies, securely attached children. So we're talking about um, infants and parents, um, securely attached children are able to go to their caregiver to seek comfort from distress, but they're also able to go out and explore the world because we need both. We need yeah, to be that's able to, to have both. Right, exactly. So securely attached infants can do both. The second type of attachment style is called anxious ambivalent. And this is where we've had a caregiver who, who is inconsistent. They're meeting our needs some of the time, but other times they're not available or they're not being responsive in the way that meets our needs. So what we do is we switch off our desire to explore our environment and we focus completely on sticking close to our caregiver so that we give ourselves the best possible chance of having those needs met so this is where you see the clingy children who are kind of attached at the leg to their to their mum or dad and they're not going off to explore the world and that's because they want to be there um to to get their needs met and that's about 20 percent of the population um securely attached is about 50 percent okay the the third style is called anxious, uh, sorry, insecure avoidant, and that's about 25%. This is when we've had a caregiver who isn't really available or doesn't respond in a way that really meets our needs. So what we do is we switch off the um, moving towards the caregiver because that's painful. If we're going to get our needs met and our caregiver isn't able to meet our needs, that becomes so painful that what we'll do is we'll switch that off, that attachment behavior and we'll spend all of our time in the world 
So this is where we develop the idea, I'm better off on my own, I'll figure out for myself, I won't rely upon other people. And so um, we just end up then disconnecting and, and going it alone. And this also um, can happen a lot more with boys, um, anecdotally, because of the way we raise our boys, we teach them, you know, not to be um, emotional or um, not to come to us with their needs that they sort of have to tough it out. Um, so you can see this style uh, more with boys as well. And then the final style is disorganized. And this is where the person who's supposed to be meeting our needs is also the source of our um, threat and danger. So this happens a lot of time in abuse situations where there is no clear strategy for getting our needs met. Um, and so we can't go towards our caregiver, but also we're not safe in the world. And so it's a more disorganized, um, there is no clear strategy um, in that case. So for me, why this is so important is because these attachment relationships and the and the developing styles that we've developed growing up form such a huge part of our foundations of, of why we are the way that we are. Because in the mix of all of that, we're also... Um, our attachment relationships are responsible for our ability to emotionally regulate. We're not born with the ability to manage our emotions. We rely upon a regulated caregiver to come along and soothe our distress, soothe our nervous systems, um, and give us that relief from our emotions. Um, and so that's how we then internalize the ability to emotionally regulate, which is obviously important when we're adults for our ability to manage our emotions. Our I feel like to so much of this, when you're an adult, you can see how you know you can see how this has affected adults um and lots of adults don't understand why they have issues with lots of different things but if you go back to this you can see you know just from their childhood why that might i can see it in mine like immediately why i might not trust people for instance and why i might want to go off and find a solution on my own i feel like i'm very very self independent and that kind of thing is because of these these attachment styles that you're talking about absolutely yeah absolutely and that forms also our sense of self so we form our sense of self who we are through the eyes of our caregiver and through these behaviors so the way that our caregivers behave and the way that we respond develops our sense of self um so if we have caregivers who are um, available and nurturing and um happy and loving will develop our view of self as I'm lovable, I'm likable, I'm worthy of care. Whereas if we have caregivers who are absent or angry, irritable, um, we don't know, it's because of some other reason they're dealing with in their life. As kids, we think it's our fault. And so we develop this idea that we're not good enough, um, that we're not likable, or that we have to bend ourselves to be a particular way in order to be approved of, in order to be loved. These are the building blocks for then how what we carry through our life. Oftentimes people think we just grow out of things or, you know, it's it will just come um it will just amend in time. It actually doesn't. We we carry these things through through into our adulthood. And so when we're struggling with things in our adult life, whether it's things like parenting or whether it's building our businesses, we track it all the way back to those early life experiences and we can find where that came from. And once we find where it comes from, then what? How can we make that better for ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. So the way our internal world is sort of structured, we have these. Um, so I'm trained in a model called IFS, Internal Family Systems. 
And we very much believe that we have this sort of system of parts. So we have this, this inner child parts of, which carry the wounding of those experiences growing up. And then we have these protective parts that come along and try to protect us from feeling that pain. Um, and so it's often the protective strategies that we use that we can notice in business. So that's the things like self-criticism, self um, self-sabotage, visibility fears, comparisonitis, imposter syndrome, all of those things are really that protective layer trying to protect us against what's underneath, which is a wounded child part holding this belief and this experience of not being good enough. And so what we need to be doing is working with that protective layer first and then unburdening those protective layers to be able to get to the wounded parts and then helping those parts heal. But it really starts with a few steps first. We need to, to develop the ability to emotionally regulate. If we're being triggered left, right and centre, I mean, you see it all the time online. Yeah. People are with one another, people are falling out with one another. For You know, I come from a very compassionate place. You know, I can often see what's being triggered in people and why they're responding the way they are. When we're activated a lot of the time, when we're being triggered and we're spending a lot of time feeling the stress and anxiety or anger or whatever else we're experiencing, we can't get to the healing because we're, we're just so triggered. So the first job is really emotionally regulating, learning how to look after our emotions, how to look after ourselves when we're being triggered. And then we want to spend more time connecting and being present with those with our internal world, which lots of people find really hard. This is why people don't like meditating. It's why people get bored with things or they resist doing things because it can be really difficult actually to slow down and start to be present with what we've got going on inside. Often because we have a sense that there's something under the surface that's uncomfortable or difficult or painful. Yeah, and you don't want to face it. I've seen that with my clients where they don't, they don't want to go any deeper. They just want to continue. Um, the problem with that is that patterns show up over and over again. And it doesn't matter what I teach. Like I will see the same pattern show up that they won't be visible or they will be triggered by somebody and just keep showing up because nothing's healed. And so that pattern will just be there forever. Yeah, and those protective those protective strategies are really strong and powerful. We've we've used them for a long time. They probably worked initially. Um, we don't realize that that's what's happening, and so we feel like we don't have any other choice. Um, and so we can we can hold really strong on those protective strategies, believing that's the only way to see us through. We don't realize there's another way, and there's another way that doesn't involve as much energy, as much stress, and having the impact that it does on other areas of our life. Yeah, I think that's such a, if, if so many people realised the link between this, I think it would change quite a lot online um, because you do see these people being triggered left, right and centre. And I was like that before I kind of dealt with my inner child, if you like, and, and healed that inner child because I was bullied when I was younger. If anyone said anything to me online, my protective part would go into defense mode. And I could see it happening over and over again. And it's exhausting, you know, like it, the energy spent on it was exhausting. And then once I'd done this kind of work on realizing there is another way to deal with it, you don't have to be involved in anything if you don't want to. No one's going to make you. Um, it changed everything for me and it really just calmed me. And my nervous system thanked me for it. Um, yeah. because I could see what it was doing. Your nervous system, if your nervous system is constantly on high alert, you will get ill. Exactly. Like yeah. I've seen it happen, not just to me, but to others. 
Yeah. And it robs us from our quality of life, not just in terms of health and wellness, but in terms of being constantly switched on to a state of threat. That our quality of life, if we're living our life in that state of ever present threat, is totally different than when we're able to switch into a restful mode and actually calm and be present. And the quality of our relationships, the quality of our lives will really improve. Yeah, I can totally see that. So who do you work with now? Like you obviously have your private practice, but online you work with business owners and do you work with people that are seeing these symptoms of comparisonitis, imposter syndrome and all the things? Yeah, it's, it's such a really common internal pattern, um, self-doubt, self-sabotage, fear of judgment. It's just so strong and powerful, particularly in online space. Um, I think when people are in employed positions and they're in their comfort zone, they've got their colleagues that they know and they're able to kind of shape their jobs the way they want, they they stay kind of away from those challenges. Whereas for those of us in business and the online space, we're stretched outside of our comfort zones. We're having to be visible. We're, we're, we're kind of in those spaces that trigger a lot of these things. So I see this in a lot of um, business women and it's, it's a really common pattern. What happens is that people don't realize how common it is that it's a part of the human condition. It's, it's um, and, and understanding it in the ways that we've been talking about, they, they believe strongly that it's actually them and that they're the only ones that feel that way, that, that, that this signifies that there's something wrong with them, that they're not the one, like the imposter syndrome thing, that they don't belong or they're not competent enough. Um, and it's only in shifting that pattern and realizing that it's not something about them. It's based on their experiences and that this pattern is really common across people um, where we can really see those shifts. If somebody's listening right now and is like, I feel all of these things, <laughs> and maybe they can recognize where it might have come from as well, where is the best place for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. You can come and find me on my website or I'm on Instagram a lot of the time. I'm on Facebook, all the usual bases. Just reach out. I do offer um, initial calls with people to chat things through. I know that it's a big step uh, reaching out to somebody, um, particularly in the therapy space. It can feel a bit more daunting. So I offer that 15 minutes, 20 minutes to just have a chat, answer any questions. Um, so yeah, welcome anyone to reach out if that's resonating with them. Brilliant. Thank you for being here. Um, that was Dr. Claire Burley. And um, if you need to reach out, please do. We'll put all of the links in the show notes as well so you can do that there. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Making Money Online with Lisa Johnson. If you'd like to get hold of my guide to launching, go to lisajohnson.com forward slash launch and let's get you making money online.